Well, turn with me in your Bibles, please, and we want to continue our wonderful study in the book of John, and we are in John chapter 3 this morning, really a second installment of uh, what we started last week, really an exposure of hypocrisy, and there's no greater effort for you or me in our lives personally to have our hypocrisy exposed. That happens to me just about every day when I find myself uh, avoiding uh, or escaping the realities of what Scripture has called us to. Uh, we call that sin. When we disobey God's Word, it's sin. And in every measure, at every point, in every count, in every essence, in every expression of some rejection of God's Word, there is hypocrisy for those of us who claim to trust God's Word. It's what it is. And then there is the reality of those who are steeped in hypocrisy. There's a difference. You and I are going to fail until we die. And because of Christ's lack of failure, there will be no hypocrisy in heaven. But there will be hypocrisy here. When I was uh, first becoming churched, so to speak, I won't, I won't say that I was necessarily in a real biblical church by any means, but many years ago when I was in my early 20s, the uh, pastor used to say at least other, every other week, uh, you know, for those who call you a hypocrite, just tell them we're better than the hypocrites outside the church. You may as well just join us in the church. Well, there was a little bit of uh, significance in that idea. The reality is that there are those who are hypocritical in their essence. They're hypocritical in their core. And, of course, that person would want nothing to do with any kind of exposure of his hypocrisy. He wouldn't want that to be on display. You and I, as we grow in maturity, recognize the great value, the great benefit of our hypocrisy being on display. Uh, it's kind of like dragging some weed in your lawn out into the light and, and hacking it to death. You know, you go as deep as you can to get down underneath the root and get the root of that weed or whatever it is you're trying to do away with. And that's what should happen with our hypocrisy. If you don't see it, you're in big trouble. You hear me? If you're not convinced that you have hypocrisy, you are in a desperate condition. It's God's kindness that brings us to repentance. And you are not brought to repentance by kindness without acknowledging the need for repentance. It's a beautiful joy for those of us who are in Christ to have the privilege to bring our weaknesses, really our sins, to each other, either by confession of one's own sin or drawing attention to a brother's sin. And let me be just extremely candid with you as your brother. Nothing discourages me more about a person when I have addressed their sin and they don't come back to me to tell me what's going on with that. When there has been the careful, loving effort to address something that's obvious and the person doesn't want to hear about it. So you say, well, okay, maybe we'll pick this up again. And you never hear about it again. That is a desperate condition. That's sort of what happens between Jesus and Nicodemus, sort of. There's more to the story, as you know, from later in John 7 and then John 19, regarding the condition of Nicodemus. So there's good news about Nicodemus. There are a handful of folks throughout the New Testament that Jesus has interaction with, and you don't see any good news. You just see this stalemate. You see this, well, no, that's not true about me. And they walk away sad. And in many cases in our culture, and I don't mean specifically our culture in our local church, although there certainly is some of that, but I mean more in the modern you know, church culture, what happens then is there is an effort to undermine the credibility of the one who brought the accusation. Though it was brought lovingly, with grace, with kindness, or, or let's say that it wasn't. Let's say that it was fumbled and bumbled, but it was still true. Then there is a careful and strategic and deliberate and collective effort to cut at the root of the character of the one who brought attention to the issue, rather than saying, I wonder if there might be some truth in what's being addressed in my life. See, that would be the loving, brotherly response. And in Matthew 18, you see a very clear prescription with regard to what to do in either case. If the person responds well, you've won your brother. You've won your brother. And you rejoice. 
But if he resists you, you go back with one or two more. And if he resists that, you, have, you still haven't seen your brother restored, then you tell the church. You say, oh, we can never do that. Yes, we can and we must for the sake of the purity of the church and for the sake of the salvation of the hypocrite. A lot of hypocrites are really slippery, though, right? Because they're hypocrites. They're actors. They do a really good job of shaking your hand and looking you in the eye and using all the polite Emily Post conduct that would lead people to think, well, he's a pretty good guy. Weigh that against, you know, the things that you see a problem with. Doesn't it all balance? No. No, not if it's a pattern. John says you're not born again. You're not born of God if there's a pattern of sin. Well, by way of review from last week, we focused on the artificial character of the Pharisees. The artificial character of the Pharisees in general. Nicodemus was the leader of the Pharisees. He was in the Sanhedrin. He was of the elite of the elite of the religious leaders. Jesus refers to him as the teacher. So he's at the top of the pile of hypocrisy. He's the best. He's the best actor in the first century Roman Catholicism. There's a whole lot of man-made efforts to produce additional laws uh, in Judaism. Same with Roman Catholicism. You could parallel them with charts of conduct and rules and what's necessary. You know, the legalistic bondage of having an unbearable yoke placed on you. If you've come out of Roman Catholicism, you've experienced the relief of recognizing that you couldn't perform the way you were required to perform to attain your salvation. Now, you and I are still mandated to obey the Word of God, but we obey the Word of God by faith, recognizing that Christ is the one who fulfilled the law. So this artificial character of the Pharisees is very much like the modern-day pope. I said to you last week, this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus is probably a whole lot like a conversation you might have with the pope or with some cardinal. More and more and more, we're seeing the exposure. I mean, think of it. In a system where a man who has a natural and really right desire to be married and to enjoy the enjoyments of marriage, yet he's required not to be married. So what does he do in private? He does what he must do to prevent himself from burning sexually. And more and more and more of this stuff is being exposed. I read an article uh, yesterday about the Pope and his comment about the need for Mary to be the mother of every Christian. He says, if you claim to be a Christian and you do not consider Mary to be your mother, you're not born again. It's just ludicrous. But Catholics buy this stuff, Roman Catholics, I should say. They buy this stuff because it's a sentimental connection. It's like family, you know, a part of this big, massive, you know, multi-billion person family. And it's all sentimental. And so you wash away the realities. You pretend they're not happening. And they're happening more and more and more. And I should say they're being exposed more and more and more. The artificial character of the Pharisees was like this. What they were requiring of others was that which they could only convince others that they were performing. They're actors. They knew they weren't fulfilling that, but they were convinced because others were convincing them that they were fulfilling it, that they must do it too. And so their subjects would do the same, and it's an unbearable yoke. You and I can look at each other and say, hypocrite, love you. <laughs> right? We know, we know we have hypocrisy. We know we have sin. We know we fail. The Pharisees knew they failed, but they didn't want anybody to know that they failed. So they pretended. That's what hypocrites do. Well, then we talked about the accidental confession of one Pharisee, and obviously we're talking about Nicodemus here, where Nicodemus asks, he asks the worst questions. These aren't good questions. These are not theological questions. When Jesus talks about being born again and Nicodemus scratches his head, Jesus is saying, you don't even know that? And see, you and I, when we came to faith, we, we would say, yeah, I didn't even know that. No one ever explained it to us. 
And so we felt as though, at least I did, I think you probably did too, we felt as though we were probably performing well enough. I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian, therefore I'm right with God, enough. So we saw this accidental confession of one Pharisee, which I'm convinced if you look further into chapter 7 and chapter 19, like we mentioned last week, you see ultimately a very sincere confession, a very deliberate, strategic, willful confession. Uh, You don't see that in writing from Nicodemus, but you see it in his life when he attends to the person of Christ in his death by providing 75 pounds worth of perfume to minister to the Lord. He's there in his death uh, with Joseph of Arimathea to minister to the Lord. He's showing his devotion. Somehow there was a transaction. There was rebirth. And uh, Nicodemus displayed that. But here in, our, in this discussion, which was probably more like several hours long, not what you and I have here, but we have some insight into it. You see that the exposure of Nicodemus shows him to be worthless worthless. And there's a, friends, there's a point in time where every person in some close proximity to their conversion must acknowledge this. In fact, Nicodemus was not only worthless, he was harmful. And that's the truth with any Roman Catholic leader who's persuaded others to think that he's holy, he's helpful, he's honoring to the Lord. No, he's drawing people into an unbearable yoke. That's what Nicodemus was doing, but Nicodemus had had this revelation. He had become aware of the fact that he was living in hopelessness. So he goes to Jesus under the clandestine condition of nighttime in the darkness where he can have a little more semi-private conversation and get, hopefully, some hope. But again, he doesn't even know what to ask. Well, this morning, we want to pick up where we left off having dealt with the artificial character of the Pharisees and the accidental confession of one Pharisee, uh, with a reminder of what we said about this last week. And that is that the exposure of a self-deceived hypocrite will only have an eternal result when he himself is doing the exposing. See that? When a guy is exposed by others, and others are addressing his sin, and more and more people are saying, yeah, this is sort of an obvious problem, Whoa, he's rejecting it. He's denying it. Whoa, this is getting worse and worse and worse. The only point at which we might be convinced that there's any real hope for something actually happening regeneration-wise is at the point where he himself is willing to acknowledge what everyone else knows. This morning, four factors in a nighttime conversation expose the condemnation of the unregenerate and the confidence of the born again, so that you may be certain to have eternal life. I know most of you, I know most of you pretty well, and that's just the grace that God has blessed us with in our church. Not just because we're kind of a small church, but because you have a shepherd. You have a shepherd in your life. It might be me if you're in my family group, but if not, you're in another family group where there is a man who is biblically qualified according to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5. He's committed to protecting the flock of God from wolves. And he loves you. And his wife prays with him for you. And they operate in such a way that is a protective device for you. Now, plenty of folks have come to our church and said, well, this is a different culture. Never seen this before. I know a lot of churches have youth pastors, and they have a music pastor, and they you know, have a senior pastor, uh, meaning for seniors, on down the line. They have all these different pastors, and so they're focusing on these age-graded ministries, which you don't find in the Bible, except when it comes to discipleship, and that is older men pouring into younger men and older women pouring into younger women. And what we mean by age-graded there is that they're segregated in category but put together for discipleship, and so many churches are focused on keeping them apart. Let's put all the kids together. Let's put all the singles together. Now, there's a really bad idea. Can I get an amen? <laughs> That's a, I'm just, let me say it again. That's a really bad idea. Say, no, no, single people need to be around each other so they can find out who they might marry under very, very close pastoral supervision. Otherwise, you end up with a whole lot of problems. Let me tell you, I did that for six years. By God's grace, the Lord 
gave us the ability to really transition a meat market into a legitimate ministry where we were focusing on the Word of God. I rarely taught about singleness because the Bible doesn't say a lot about it, but where the Bible does say something about it, we taught on that. And really what it comes down to, if you're single, you need to be spending a whole lot more time ministering in the body of Christ than those who are married. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, you'll see that. That's really what it comes down to when you look at singleness. Now, they're the obvious and difficult, precarious scenarios where you might be a single parent, and that's difficult. And you might need a lot of help from the body of Christ. You probably do. Trust that you're getting that in our local body. But at this point, we are looking at four additional factors in this conversation on top of the two that we looked at last week. Again, last week we saw an artificial character in the Pharisees in general. We saw a very specific accidental confession of one Pharisee, Nicodemus. This morning, I want you to see the absolute condemnation of false conversion. The absolute condemnation of false conversion. Years ago, I was sitting across from a dear gal who was a secretary in the large church where I was on the pastoral staff, and we were talking about this idea of asking Jesus into your heart. She was very akin to that terminology, very uh, inclined to use that terminology. And I said, well, show me where that is in the Bible, that, that idea of asking Jesus into your heart. is very common in church circles today. You hear it from the pulpit all the time, almost every Sunday, maybe every Sunday in certain churches. Making him the Lord of your life. Where is that? Where is that? Now, some people would point to Revelation 3 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, those who open it up. I will enter in and sup with him. Who's Jesus talking to there? He's talking to the church. Thank you, you well-educated people who actually read your Bibles. He's talking to the regenerate church. It's not by any means evangelistic. So now where are you going to go in the Bible for that? There's nowhere. There's nowhere. So this dear soul said to me, well, don't you think, though, when you, know, you persuade someone to ask Jesus into their heart, that that might get them closer? And I said, no, dear, dear sister, no, absolutely not. It gets them farther away because it is a, say it with me, false conversion. It's a false conversion rooted in a false gospel. You say, but aren't there people who really do come to know Christ when they pray the sinner's prayer? Perhaps, but it's a coincidence. You say, coincidence, what, what do you mean? I mean that there's actually been an exposure to the gospel at some point if they actually became a Christian. And there was actual repentance and belief in the gospel, which you do see in the Bible, Mark 1.15. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, there's, there's something you can take with you into an evan- and should take with you into an evangelistic conversation. But I'm here to tell you this morning from this text that there is absolute condemnation in a false conversion. Think of it. Nicodemus was at the height of religious leadership and maybe one of the most persuasive in terms of convincing people that he was actually a righteous man. And he was a troubled soul. And he came to the teacher. He came to the miracle worker. He came to the Lamb of God. He came to the one whom he and other Pharisees knew to come from God. He said that, remember? We know that you come from God. He knew that much. So he wasn't utterly clueless, but he was pretty clueless. He knew enough to know that Jesus, if I can use this terminology, was the real thing. He knew enough to know that, and therefore he knew there was a great disparity between the condition of those who were actually following Jesus and himself, Nicodemus himself, who was displaying a false conversion. He knew there was a deep-rooted problem, and he didn't wash it over. He didn't wash it over with an attempt to undermine the teacher. He listened. He listened in aggravation. He listened in frustration. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. (laughs) Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
because he's got no good question to ask. It's not a theological question. That's not the question of one who is educated with Scripture, who is saturated in truth. He's pointing to the illustration. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Are you kidding me? Of course that's not what he means. He's using a figure of speech. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, that's, that's hopelessness. And the result of being unable is that you are in a hopeless state. You are under absolute condemnation, and Nicodemus knew enough to at least be concerned about his soul. Jesus says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So if you're born of the flesh, you're of the flesh. He's using the same term to speak of two different realities. One, the physical reality of being born physically, and the other of being spiritually depraved in that fleshly condition. So there's absolute condemnation here. And I'm saying this strictly rooted in the reality that Jesus says you cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And this is not simply a matter of verbal assent being willing. Plenty of Roman Catholics today would say, of course we believe in being born again, when 20, 30 years ago they would have rejected that because they didn't even have Bibles. Nowadays, more and more Roman Catholics actually have a Bible, and so they see the terminology in the Bible, and so they're willing to say, well, yeah, we, we believe in being born again. Back in the 80s, it was almost enough, I say almost, almost enough for a person to say, hey, are you a born-again Christian, to separate the Roman Catholic from the evangelical. Remember those days, some of you, when you would say, well, are you born again? And their Roman Catholic friend would say, oh, what does that mean? Oh, that's silly. What are you talking about? No, I love the Lord. But today, they're going to wax on like a good Mormon, right? They're going to talk like our terminology is all the same. Our theology is roughly the same. You know, there's this sad schism between Roman Catholics and, and other Christians who are not Roman Catholic, but we're all the same church. No, 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 no. No, 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 you're not born again if you're convinced that you are achieving righteousness and maintaining it in your works. So I said, Nicodemus can't even think of a valid question. So he stretches the teacher's argument to the ridiculous. You ever had that experience? You're trying to have a good, solid discussion with someone and graciously lead them to reality, and they take what you're saying and they stretch it far beyond what you've said. That's what, that's what Nicodemus is doing here. Oh, so you're saying i got to go back inside my mom. No, silly, I'm not saying that, and you know that. I don't know if Jesus used the word silly, but wouldn't it be appropriate if he had? Because that is a silly thing to say. Well, point number four, I want you to see the aggravated cluelessness of the unconverted hypocrite. Now, this might sound like harsh terminology, but it's right terminology. I would strongly commend you to be less passionate in your private conversations than I am in the pulpit. You need passion from the pulpit, but you need a whole lot of compassion that hopefully you see in me in my passion, but you and your private conversations, you got to be careful. I don't recommend that you do away with this terminology, but have it in your back pocket for the right timing. Nicodemus exhibited a very, very aggravated cluelessness. And if you want a more palatable term, then use the word consternation. That also starts with the letter C. It's an aggravated, and I almost use the word annoyed, kind of the same thing. There is an annoyance on the part of the person who is so confused by sound theology. Why? Because he's been resting in not just watered-down theology, but wrong theology for so long that it's a real challenge. Some of you, many of you, have acknowledged that stepping into our church was spiritual culture shock, and you almost didn't come back. That's not my fault, right? That's the fault of whoever just never taught you well. And it might be a little your fault, but I would say it was my fault, too, in the days when I was shocked when I sat and read Cornelius Van Til's The Defense of the Faith. 
And as I'm reading, I see this declaration that if man could somehow reject God's grace, that he could frustrate God's plan. And I wrote in the column, yeah, so? Well, <laughs> silly, huh, for me to think that I could frustrate God's plan, but that's how man-centered theology thinks. So prideful. Well, the aggravated cluelessness that you see here in Nicodemus is not unusual in our day. It's very common. It's aggravated when they hear truth. You've experienced it yourself. You're aggravated when you hear truth early on, way back, maybe prior to your conversion, even in the early days of having been converted. So frustrating. That can't be true. In his aggravation, as I said, he stretches Jesus' argument to the ridiculous and he puts words in Jesus' mouth that Jesus didn't say. I tend to be careful in conversation, and especially when I'm having this kind of discussion, I won't let that go unaddressed when someone tries to put words in my mouth. Now, you can't always address it, but I certainly remember it, and I, I will typically want to go back and say, you know, now you said this, but I never said that. I never said that. This is a common tactic among those who have no real information but pridefully want to display some sort of scholarly acumen. Again, it's common. If you have access to the Internet, you're a scholar, apparently, some folks think. Well, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, look, this is simple stuff. This is not deep theology. This is simple information. If you knew your true condition, you'd know that you are not your solution. You need outside help, and you don't need assistance. You need to be given life. Nicodemus, you don't have life. You need life. Jesus may have said, you remember, Nicodemus, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Nicodemus, you know this. You're, you're the teacher. You know Jeremiah 17, right? You know that you didn't fulfill the law. You know that you couldn't because of your heart condition. See, the man-centered theology in our day that is so ridiculously prevalent avoids this reality. No, 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 I can bring myself to Christ. Psalm 51.5, Nicodemus, you know that verse, right? Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Nicodemus, you know that, right? You know that David was right when he made that declaration that his problem started in conception Psalm 58 verse 3 the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray from birth speaking lies Nicodemus you know that verse 4 says well he wouldn't have said verse 4 but he would have said Nicodemus you know that that passage goes on to say they have venom like the venom of a serpent like the deaf adder that stops its ear you hear that think of this illustration the deaf adder that stops its ear. The snake who doesn't hear well enough to keep itself out of trouble. So he's talking about the person in this condition that refuses to listen. You know, Jesus would say he needs ears to hear. He needs eyes to see. He's like the snake who has no ability to hear. You deliberately turn your hearing off. I suspect that there are those in our day that instant they start hearing the truth of God's character, the truth of a biblical soteriology, they say, oh, here we go again. I suspect that there are those who do that deliberately and passionately, have so dismissed it for so long, they, again, because they have access to the internet, they think they have scholarly acumen, must be right in their conclusions. Nicodemus you know that this verse goes on to say, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. See, that's what the snake does. The snake tries to turn off its hearing so it's protected 
But the way Jesus is using this illustration, this reality, is as an illustration to show that there are those who turn their ears off to their own demise. And then the pervasive reality displayed in Genesis 6, verse 5. I suspect those who have rejected the truth of God's character would say, oh, here we go again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. This is pervasive in the heart of man. It's chronic and it's pervasive. It says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You're gonna listen, are you gonna say to a person about whom you know this is true, that the thoughts and intents of his heart are only evil continually? Hey, just ask Jesus into your heart. It's an evil heart with evil intention. And whatever it would be for him to ask Jesus into his heart would be evil. Very likely it would be the wrong Jesus. Certainly not the Jesus of sovereign grace. Genesis 6, 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. This is the pervasive, totally depraved condition of man. It's aggravated cluelessness. It's consternation. Oh, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. By faith. Not by his works. By his faith. Hebrews 11. Our passage goes on to say in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, we're going to come back to this, but I needed to read that section of the passage so that we go into verse 9, looking at this continued, aggravated confusion on the part of Nicodemus. And really, as we said, the aggravated cluelessness, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Oh, the times I've heard this over the years. Usually has to do with election. But how can that be? That doesn't fit the God I know. And so, you've heard me say this before, what happens then is they'll start battling the Bible against the Bible pitting these verses against these verses, attempting to undo. Now, you want to see the Bible in its context, right? The Bible has what we call plenary value, meaning that it is of equal value across the board, and God doesn't contradict himself. But when you attempt to undo a passage with another passage, um, you don't believe the Bible. You don't believe it's God's word. You believe it requires your interpretation. Pretty clear. Nicodemus is in consternation. How can these things be? Nicodemus, you're the teacher. (laughs) Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is our? Jesus and the Father. I and the Father are one. I came to do not my will, but his will. The testimony of the Lord, Nicodemus doesn't get it. Friends, listen, I'm going to tell you something. There are a lot of extremely effective patterns and systems that bring about confusion, but there are a handful that are so effective in their deception that it's really hard to detect them. Seventh-day Adventism is one of them, but I'm telling you Arminianism is at the top of the list because people with an Arminian bent will say, how can these things be? And they have no clue. They have no idea why they don't understand what is being said. 
Now, let me say it again like I've said nearly every time I've ever brought up Arminianism. I am not saying that everyone who holds to Arminian theology is not a Christian. I've never said that, and I'm not saying that. But at some point, if you keep reading your Bible, you're going to reject the man-made idea that you brought yourself to Christ. And you're going to come to this conclusion, as did Nicodemus. How can these things be? Born again. As if salvation is a work of God alone. How many of you have been born physically? Just go ahead and raise your hands. Just make sure to see who's awake. And you were involved in that to what degree? You put your hand up just a little bit if it was just a little bit. If it was a lot, go ahead and raise it all the way up. You get the idea? Born. What in the world did you have to do with your birth other than being a blessed crying recipient? Nothing. Nothing. How can these things be? And the staunch, hard-hearted pride of the individual who stays here when he hears truth is condemning. But it also reveals his consternation. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He doesn't accept them. He, he scoffs at them. Oh, and he does everything he can to influence other people to scoff at them. Body language. Mockery. He'll scoff. The natural person, the unsaved person, right? The one who is yet in that natural, unsaved, unregenerate condition. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, point number five, I want you to see the astonishing compulsion of Holy Spirit rebirth, otherwise known as irresistible grace. The astonishing, amazing compulsion. The irresistible call of the Spirit of God by grace. That those to whom God grants grace... There is no resisting because he does not have a free will. If you're not past that point yet of understanding that you don't have free will, just remind yourself how many times this last week you wanted to do something and you did something else. God says in Proverbs 16, 9, a man plans his steps, but God directs his path, everything we looked at in regard to the natural sinful condition of man shows that he is in bondage to sin. He is not free from sin. He is in bondage to it. He does not have a free will. Now you say, well, I thought free will meant that, you know, you decided which cup of coffee to buy at Starbucks. Yes, that's not free will, but you do have the choice to do that. Hopefully you'll buy the cheaper one. Yes, you make choices. And again, this is what the scoffer will do. He will take the argument of the sound teacher, the sound theologian, the truly informed, and stretch it to the ridiculous. Oh, those Calvinists, they say that you don't make choices about anything. We never said that. I don't know of one Calvinist that has ever thought anything like that. You're thinking of hyper-Calvinists, if you're thinking that, which is distinctly different, and it's wrongly named, because when you think of hyper-something, you think of more of the one thing. It's a bad name. It doesn't really fit should be called anti-Calvinism. should be called non-Calvinism. Antinomianism is one form of it. But the astonishing compulsion of Holy Spirit rebirth is seen in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See that? That which is born as a result of the work of God the Spirit is spirit. He's now the spiritual man, 1 Corinthians 2, 15. The spiritual man appraises all things. 
He's alive. He's alive. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Simple stuff, Nicodemus. And then this illustration, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Everyone who is born of the Spirit gets hit out of nowhere. You read about Paul the Apostle in Acts 9? Paul was seeking Jesus, wasn't he? Wasn't he seeking Jesus? Wasn't he asking Jesus into his heart? I know I sound sarcastic, but I'm a little fed up with the resistance to this obvious truth, aren't you? Doesn't it create, hopefully, a spirit-filled consternation for you when you hear some repeatedly tell others you just need to seek Jesus? Without giving them any idea what that even looks like? We've seen from the book of John, that the disciples, before they became disciples, sought Jesus in a faulty way. It didn't lead to conversion. They were intrigued by the miracles. They weren't converted by their efforts to seek after Jesus. Why? Because they were totally depraved. This astonishing compulsion of Holy Spirit rebirth is revealed to us in a doctrinal sense, in a theological sense in Romans 7. Listen to this, Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See that? That's the unsaved, unregenerate, natural condition. We're bearing fruit for death. See that? Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, the Old Testament believer never fulfilled the Old Testament code. I not too long ago heard someone say, Isn't it great that we no longer have to fulfill the law? like the Old Testament believer did, and now we don't even have to work out our salvation. Two very, very confused statements. You do have to work out your salvation. It's a command in Philippians 2. What that means is that you're engaging in your own sanctification, trusting that by your obedience, God is going to cleanse you and mature you. But here, the, the way of the written code was that to which the Old Testament believer would adhere while he displayed faith in the sacrificial lamb to which that code pointed. But he never fulfilled the code. The obligation now is not being held captive by that code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. What does that look like? Fast forward to Romans 8, verse 1. There's therefore no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, right? You, you might attempt to obey the law, to fulfill the law, and you would say the law can't accomplish God's righteousness, God's pleasure, or better said, I can't accomplish that in my obedience to the law. But, verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How? By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. See that? The believer is experiencing the fulfillment of the law in him. That's what Paul says. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, this is verse 5. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So they're focused on the Word of the Spirit, not a dismissal of the Word of the Spirit, but a humble, eager reception of the hard truths. Instead of trying to dance on top of them and water them down and dismiss them. 
Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. See that? That's the condition of the person who thinks he can ask Jesus into his heart. What does it say about him? It says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. There is nothing about the person who is in the natural born state that can do anything that is pleasing to the Lord. Nothing. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Would it not please God if you actually asked Jesus into your heart and he actually came in? Would that not be pleasing to God? Paul says the unredeemed person can't do that. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Why? Because you are born of the Spirit. You've received a new birth. The, the Holy Spirit rebirth granted to the unbeliever, making him a believer. You, however, and he qualifies it, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But, but think of it. It's, all, it's super, super easy. In fact, there is a strong inclination for the person who is yet in this condition to deny the fact that he couldn't bring himself to Christ. Why? Because he wants to believe that he brought himself to Christ. Why, he himself has deceived others, making them think that he somehow is in Christ. He persists in rejecting this reality, this black and white reality. It's amazing how self-deceived he is. And this was Nicodemus. Nicodemus remained in this astonishingly clueless condition, but it would appear strongly, in fact, I think there is sound evidence, sound proof that Nicodemus ultimately surrendered to the astonishing compulsion of Holy Spirit rebirth. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 2 says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How do you have the mind of Christ? Well, this really means two things, and I don't mean two opposing things. I mean two fluidly um, interdependent things. One, you have a Bible, you have the mind of Christ written down. Two, you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and therefore you have access to the ability to think the thoughts about God's Word that God thinks about God's Word. But the person who rejects, let me, let me say it again very clearly, the person who rejects total depravity is not in Christ if he persists over time in rejecting it. Obviously, the brand new believer would look at this and go, no, 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 right? He remembers last week, I accepted Jesus. I chose Jesus. But in time, he sits under sound teaching. He recognizes the truth about his condition, and he says, wow, I had no idea how awful I was. The person who rejects this truth says, I was never that awful. That passage in Genesis 6 is only talking about everybody prior to the flood. No, no, it's not, because it is passed on through the lineage of mankind. It didn't start with those who were rejecting the Lord during the flood. It started with our father, Adam. That was the condition that God was describing. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Why? Because we have the rebirth that Christ gave us. When we have that, it's critical, especially in our day and age when there is so much nonsense being promulgated and affirmed in the modern church. It's critical that you and I rest in these truths with passion and compassion that we would know them well, that we would continue to study and be changed by the word of God, recognizing the reality of the human condition that prevented him from having any ability 
to embrace that which is righteous. There's not a sliver, there's not a pinhole of ability on the part of the unbeliever to make himself a believer. So what does he do? What does he do? Well, point number six, we'll go over next week. Father, we rejoice in your beautiful kindness to us. That while we have received rebirth, like all of us who have either observed or are at least aware of what it is that a little one would be born, we acknowledge that we ourselves, as displayed in that illustration, are unable to cause anyone to be reborn, and we were unable to be reborn ourselves. We cannot choose to be reborn. There's no command in the Bible to do it. Even as the illustration Jesus gives Nicodemus of the wind that has an impact but can't be traced, we couldn't have predicted the timing that the wind arrived, and we certainly can't predict the timing at which rebirth would arrive. But Lord, we ask for the privilege as we continue in this passage to experience that which we would call the perseverance of the saints, to have the bold confidence, even as John has said at the, at the very end of this book, these things are written, that you might know that Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in him. So, Lord, we stand strong on the bold confidence that because of what has been written, a person can have eternal life, and he can know that he has eternal life. Lord, may it be that we would stick to what is given to us by the Spirit of God, who has also given to us the newborn state. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.